Okay, reading from Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said, in what he had said there in public, sorry. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Well, I remember when I was growing up, um, I was taught that if you uh, wanted to maintain harmony in uh, family gatherings or amongst friends and acquaintances, there were two things you did not discuss. Politics and religion. And I must say, I found that in my own experience, um, that was fairly good advice and largely true. I remember as a young person some, what I would call, humdinger arguments over Christmas dinner between my uncle a union man through and through, and my father, who was a working class man, but for some reason absolutely disliked unions. He was a very rare bird. And if you start a conversation about religion, you might discover that uh, today that religion has been seen to be the source of just about uh, every negative thing that has gone wrong in human history, according to some people. And I'm sure if I went around today that I could, uh, you would be able to identify certain experiences that you may have had um, in this regard. It should come as no surprise then to us um, in our passage today that a perceived conflict between politics and religion is the setting um, we've just read about. A conflict uh, between rival authorities, between God Sorry, I've gone one too far there. Between God and Caesar. The specific issue um, that's in the background, in the context here, was known as the Roman poll tax. It was a tribute tax on the Jews, which was given directly to Caesar and thereby acknowledging Caesar's rule over them. It was hated by the Jews. However, The popularity of Jesus with the Jewish people was seen as an even greater danger by the Jewish leaders to their own power. And so this incident and debate about the authority of God and Caesar begins with a massive display of religious hypocrisy. In verse 20 we read, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. The they here, of course, if you just go one verse back, 
are the teachers of the law and the chief priests who are identified one verse earlier in verse 19. So they send spies so that you know Jesus is unaware that it's actually coming from uh, him and the aim is clear, to lure Jesus into saying something that would bring him into conflict with the authority of Caesar. So if he were to say that the poll tax was illegitimate and should not be paid, well, it would be an open and shut case um, of rebellion to the authority of Caesar and they could hand him over to the governor of the time, that is Pontius Pilate. On the other hand, if he said that such a tax was legitimate, they could accuse him of going soft on Rome, undermining God's authority and not being God's Messiah. The level of hypocrisy behind their intention is seen, however, in the way they address Jesus. What they do is employ religious flattery as a means of disposing of Jesus. Verse 21. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. The incredible irony here, of course, is that what the spies said about Jesus is actually true. He does speak and teach what is right. He does not show any partiality or favouritism in the way he treats people. And he does teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. If these spies had only believed what they had stated, they would gladly have submitted themselves to Jesus. But they do not. And in case we're tempted to, let's say, deride the spies for their hypocrisy, we need to remember that in more subtle forms, religious hypocrisy is something that can infect us all. One writer says, for example, it lurks in all our hearts because we're all disposed to want to look good to others while we forget what God actually sees. If we fail to, let's say, share something of our struggles to serve God, either with those in our community groups, week by week, or just in general conversation sometimes as issues come up, we might inevitably give, inevitably give the impression that we are better than we are, look better than we are, and so fall into a form of religious hypocrisy. But of course, no one hides the truth from God. He sees our hearts as they are. So here in our passage, we're told in verse 23 that Jesus saw through their duplicity. He knew the truth. To the question posed by the spies in verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus replies with an astonishing answer in verses 24 and 25. Show me a denarius, he says, whose image and inscription is on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In so doing, Jesus made clear two important truths when it comes to the authority of human rulers and government. 
The first is that Jesus acknowledges the legitimate authority of Caesar. The denarius had Caesar's image imprinted upon it. It was produced by Caesar and came from him. Much the same, of course, as our money in our country is produced in our government mint. So the imposition of taxes to provide basic services for both Roman and Jewish life was, in fact, the will and purpose of God. In other words, what Jesus alludes to here is what the rest of the New Testament goes on to make clear, that all government, wrong button, that all government is appointed by God for the good of society. Note what the Apostle Paul says, for instance, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 and verse 4. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, consequently, Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. To some, you see, it seems like Jesus' teaching here um, has been to endorse two spheres of life that have nothing to do with each other, often referred to as church and state. But the Apostle makes clear that that's not the case. Rather, God has set every government in place to promote good and punish evil and provide some semblance of order of peace to human life. That's why the Apostle also urges us in 1 Timothy to pray for those in power that we may live peaceable lives. Nor does God allow us to be selective about um, submitting to those authorities we think are doing the right thing. When Paul wrote these words in Romans, Nero was the emperor, godless, and evil and a great persecutor of Christians. He was the ruler when Paul wrote these words. So even wicked rulers carry the legitimate authority of God in terms of their government. But of course such authority is limited. Jesus indicates this with the second half of his answer in verse 25, give to God What is God's? While Jesus endorses the legitimate authority of earthly rulers, he also thereby endorses the overall authority of God. While earthly rulers are put in place for the good ordering of society, there's a far greater allegiance owed by God by all human life as its creator. Now, several commentators have pointed to Jesus' clever reference here to the image of Caesar on the denarius. You see, in the ancient world, the image of someone indicated um, or designated their jurisdiction over you or over something. 
These coins then rightly fell under the jurisdiction of Caesar. But when it comes to human life, Genesis makes clear that all human life is created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. So you see, just as Caesar had stamped his image on Roman coins, so God has stamped his image on all human beings. Sure, such an image has been marred by human sin and rebellion, but it's still there, nevertheless. So what does it mean to give God what is God's? Well, I think it means to acknowledge that all human life owes devotion to God as creator. This is effectively what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17 when he's preaching at the Areopagus in Athens. After proclaiming God as as creator of everything in the world, he states in verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. People are made in God's image. They bear his creative stamp. As a result, they owe God their unwavering allegiance and devotion. And God has given notice by the resurrection of Jesus that a day of accountability is coming. If you're someone who's still thinking about Jesus or wondering about who he is or that sort of thing or becoming one of his people, there are serious consequences when it comes to a decision like that. All of life belongs to God. So there are not two two spheres, two independent authorities, but there are really only two spheres of the authority of God that he has put in place. One to governing authorities of the day and one which concerns the allegiance and devotion of one's whole life. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Hence for us as God's people there is a Christian responsibility, if you like, to both authorities. We might say we are to be good citizens and good disciples. In terms of being good citizens, we have a responsibility to respect and submission or of respect and submission to governing authorities. 
The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 and verse 17 repeats in similar words that of Paul in Romans 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to men those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Now, what is this likely to look like today? for us in a democratic system of government because one vastly different from the context here. What does it mean to be a good citizen? Well, it certainly means, I think, that we ought to pay our taxes for a start. In our system, given our laws, um, there's certainly nothing wrong with minimising, let's say, tax according to those laws. But there is plenty wrong with some form of tax evasion Unfortunately, it seems often in our world, the rich and the powerful seem to be able to evade lots of tax and it's the average worker who ends up sort of paying most of it. But I also think it means that Christians, Christian believers ought to be involved where they can, in government, according to their gifts and abilities, calling. At the very least, we should take seriously the opportunity to vote And a love for people will also involve us, I think, in a way to serve others by being directly involved in the management of society, the promotion of God and the restraint of evil. In terms of our devotion to God's overall authority, I think Jesus' words, well-known words to us in the Sermon on the Mount are worth considering. In Matthew 5, 13 to 16, Jesus says of his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The devotion of our life to God's creative authority has a face towards other human beings in our world and the institutions of government. Our responsibility to be salt and light to all humanity as God's people. Salt, of course, has both flavour and preserving properties. And light clearly shows the way and reality of things. Together they commend a responsibility to model God's character and standards in our world and promote the truth of the gospel and the overall authority of God over every human life. In a democracy like our own, it seems to me, we are provided with the opportunity to both confront evil and wrongdoing with government and society, thereby restraining evil, as well as sharing the gospel providing the light necessary for people to return and devote their lives to him. However, I think we have to be careful here. There's a fairly spirited debate you might or might not be aware of today among Christians as to the extent that we should seek to push our views on society as a whole. I can't go into the details of all that. 
but it is a very spirited uh, debate. And I am not one, I am not one who is keen to push such an agenda. Because the aim um, of being salt and light, I think, is not to create a Christian nation. Unfortunately, I think that's what some people are trying to do. And that has been the mistake of many instances in the church's history which have been disasters in trying to do that. If you want to ask where is God active today, it's not in the nation, it's in the church. That's his prime activity right here, today, now, through us. Neither Jesus nor the apostles, it seems to me, show any interest in overthrowing corrupt governments or Christianising them. Yes, express an opinion. Yes, write to those in office. Yes, get involved in certain issues that you think are important for the welfare of society. But remember that real change at the political and cultural level is a problem with the sinfulness of the human heart. And only God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can bring that about. The main game, in the end, is to bring people to Jesus. That's the main game. Live lives, therefore, as Jesus' disciples and as Jesus said, of salt and light in a way that we behave and by what we say that we pray will attract people to Jesus and so glorify God. Well, let me conclude. The teachers of the law, you see, and the chief priests wanted to get rid of Jesus. So they thought they'd found a way that would leave Jesus in a no-win situation. But as always, God sees the heart in us all and Jesus saw through their duplicity and hypocrisy. In his reply, he endorsed the legitimate authority of government, of government rule, because in the end it was God's purpose for human life. And he endorsed the overall authority of God as the creator of all life and the one to whom every human being made in his image owes allegiance and devotion. As those here today, friends, who by God's love and grace have come to know him, to belong to him, let each of us take seriously our responsibility as God's representatives here and now to be salt and light to the institutions of our land and our community. Why? So that some may turn and give glory to God and spend eternity with us, with his son. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that You are the creator of everything in the world. We thank you that your image is stamped upon our very being. Yet, Lord, we know that um, that image has been affected by sin and rebellion and so there are so many who do not acknowledge your overall authority. We know that because of that you have put in place 
governments in every place to punish good and restrain evil and to bring some sort of order and peace to human life if possible. So as your disciples, Lord, we pray that you may help us each day to be salt and light in this context uh, with the aim and only one aim, that you might use us through your spirit uh, that more and more people might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and bring glory to you forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.